Let's turn our hearts to the Father in prayer. Holy Father, we recognize that we are able to, in a moment like this, uh, through the songs that we've been singing, through the prayers that we have prayed, uh, in attentive listening to the reading of your word and its teaching, uh, we have access into your presence, drawing near by the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we admit our debt, our immense and incalculable <clears throat> and insurmountable debt if we sought to repay it by our own effort. But Lord, we thank you that in the name of Jesus grants us all repayment of debt and full credit that we need to be able to stand before you in confidence, Lord. What a joy that the one who knows all the names of the stars and calls them each out by name, who understands every hair that is on our head, uh, the thoughts on our, the words in our tongue before their thoughts in our mouths, the one who made planets and universes and microorganisms knows us and such a holy one we can access, we can know, Father, you are you are of such weight and you are of such glory and you are of such majesty and nothing is of greater excellence and beauty than you. And we recognize it is only in the name of Jesus that we have access to behold you. So we thank you for a moment that we have in front of us now, short as it is to be able to hear the very words of the living God who beckons us draw near. Lord, so I pray soften our hearts, alleviate our fears, humble our arrogance that we might see ourselves truly and rightly before you, mighty God. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. A couple of years ago, world-class Kenyan runner uh, ran the fastest time ever recorded for a marathon, one hour, 59 minutes, 40 seconds. It was the first time someone got under two hours, but it wasn't a world record. Though it was the fastest time ever set, it wasn't a world record because in order for uh, um, a time like this to qualify, it needed to be run under um, a certain prerequisite or qualification of conditions and course. But there were some unique advantages that this runner specifically had set up so that he could get the fastest time ever. For once, it wasn't like a long winding trail. It was like the same one kilometer flat loop at a certain elevation that had better oxygen level in Austria or somewhere. Uh, he had a pace car with a laser line that told him the exact speed that he should be running at. He had like, like a Canada goose-like V of professional runners in front of him the whole time that were drafting from him, and they would switch out like every 20, 30 minutes or so, so they'd always be fresh. He wanted to uh, secure the best endurance, fastest endurance time ever, and in order for him to endure, he specifically uh, created his own conditions to be able to give himself a unique advantage. Now, throughout the course of the book of Hebrews, we have been introduced to a kind of people, a community of believers who were very weary. 
and who are ready to give up. And we've come to a time now, as we read in verse 36, where the writer says explicitly to them, you have need for endurance. So in this passage, we're going to see this writer who knows how high the stakes are for them to seriously consider leaving the faith, yet is also so sympathetic to the real struggles they were experiencing because of the social pressures around them. So in order to help them see their need of endurance, he doesn't just tell them and send them off on their own. He gives them the advantageous conditions so that they can endure. And when we're talking about endurance in their context, in in ours, what we're really describing is persevering in the faith. Whether it's the daily troubles of following Jesus, whether it's when we're afflicted by sufferings, whether we're burdened by doubts, whether we're being deceived by sin, these things can all tempt us to leave the faith. Endurance is persevering in the faith even through all of these unique troubles. We need to learn endurance. In Hebrews 10, 19 to 39, details the advantageous conditions so that you can keep going. There's three. The first one requires us to see that the endurance that we need doesn't come from ourselves. We need to be able to endure together. Look at verse 19 to 25, and I want you to notice like the, the community orientation that this writer is helping them to orient them towards. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we're going to persevere in the faith, if we're going to endure, we need to learn how to endure together. Now, the first two verses in this uh, section here, 19 and 20 to 21, are a brief summary of the argument that the author makes from chapter 7 to chapter 10. In essence, he's reminding them of the assurance they have in what Christ has accomplished. Christ gained them access to God's presence in a way that the temple could never give them access to God's presence. Christ secured forgiveness forgiveness through his sacrifice made once for all that the constant animal sacrifices under the old Levitical priesthood never could. They've secured eternal access. They have a once for all sacrifice. But these people, remember, these were converted Jews who because of the social pressure of persecution around them 
thought they should just drift back into the old pattern of temple worship rather than persevering in their faith in Christ. And he reminds, he tells them if they're going to endure, they need to endure together. So what does that look like? What does it mean? It means drawing near to God's presence together. Now, when he says that in verse 21, let us draw near, he's distinctly referring to prayer. Isn't it an odd thing that even though I don't physically or geographically reposition myself, I don't need to turn towards the east, I don't need to move into some kind of sacred uh, room, but just by humbling my heart and directing my attention through the name of Jesus, I have access into the very presence of God. And Christian, so do you. He's distinctly referring to prayer. Let us draw near together, but it's likely that he's also referring to all the practices of corporate worship in which we draw near to God's presence. That's preaching, that's congregational singing, that's observing the Lord's Supper, that's fellowship in each other's homes. And because of the inexhaustible mercy that we have in Christ and because of the lavish grace that's secured, though we may fear if God will accept us to draw near, those fears are only our insecurities and nothing to the insufficiency of the full assurance of faith that we have because we've been cleansed and washed by the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. We can draw near together. We can have a true heart, full assurance, because we have been purified from all of our sin for all of time through Jesus Christ. Let us draw near. That builds endurance. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That builds endurance. Now, confession of hope. What does he mean? Confession here doesn't mean like admitting our sins, right? You do something, no, you know you shouldn't, you need to confess your sin. He's not referring to the admission of our sins. The, in the context of Hebrews, confession is often used in this letter as affirming faith. And for these Jews, they understood their confession was the truth that Jesus Christ is the superior priest who has offered the once-for-all sacrifice. And this confession, admitting, acknowledging the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done, it's a confession of hope. The hope of secure access to God, the hope of an eternal redemption that's secured, the hope that all of my sins are washed away, the hope that I know that I am loved by God. Now, though, to lose grip on our confession of faith and to return to the old pattern of the temple worship would be to lose grip on their hope, to lose grip on their access to God's presence. Now, holding fast to our confession of faith doesn't mean that you need to have some ironclad will, some um, immovable resolve. Believers can hold fast to their confession of hope, as it says in the end of verse 23, because he who promised is faithful. The confession 
of your hope, the grip of your confession on that hope isn't based on how strongly you're able to hold on to it, but based on the one who made promises and the security in it. God who promised is faithful. Endurance means drawing near. Endurance means holding fast. Endurance also means enduring together means stirring one another up to love and good works. Because verse 25 says Christ is coming back and that day is drawing near. And knowing that Christ is coming back and we will all stand before him to give an account for the life we lived in this world, in our flesh, we need encouragement to endure. Practically, I think these two ways that we endure together, um, drawing near and holding fast, can only be accomplished by practicing this third one. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Stirring up means that I know your life. I know what's happening. And it's as if I can recognize the temperature of your soul. I like campfires growing up. I did some pretty foolish things around campfires growing up. But I knew how to make a good campfire with one match and no accelerant because I had been around them a lot. I knew what to do when it looked like my, my cabin structure was starting to fall and how to be able to uh, put more logs on the fire, stir it around so that it could stay blazing as long as it needed. Do you know how to keep someone else's soul temperature burning? Do you know people enough that you can tell if they are warmed by the nearness of God's presence? You can see the things that light them up with passion for Christ. You know what shuts them down like throwing a bucket of water on them. And you know how to stir the embers of their soul to reignite a flame when it seems like it's going out. And I'm not talking about you knowing yourself. How can you stir up one another? Think about where you fit in this congregation. Do you feel like you are well known here? Our church has been through a lot of change in its short time. Some of you remember Greenland Public School. Some of you have no idea where that is and what that's about. Some of you remember the earliest days and very small groups and long fellowship lunches. Others of you came to this church as Senator O'Connor very large, steep, sloping uh, seats in a crammed space and challenges with production, but great warmth and a deep appreciation for theology. Others of you started attending services for the first time when you could only watch online. Some of you have been here and like you don't, the idea of quantifying change isn't sure because you've just been here so, so short. However long or however short you've been here, however many theology textbooks you've read or haven't read, whatever, whoever knows or doesn't know what a Puritan is, we are all responsible for one another. 
I believe that we, we are fruitful in our ability to know one another and care for one another. But we've experienced enough change over the past few years that some of us need to consciously opt in again to fellowship, to stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Others of us need to consciously choose to start tearing down the brick wall that we've chosen to build up to keep others from drawing near to the warmth of our presence. When we have this loving support, it is, it's comforting to know that I am known and loved and to know that others will build up the flame of my soul that I can keep enduring. The writer wants them to be comforted by the knowledge that they aren't alone, that they're doing this together. But he also knows that the stakes at hand are high. And they don't just need comfort, they need a clear mind. Because the stakes at hand, if they couldn't persevere, if they didn't endure, were high. What if they unhinged themselves from the anchor of their souls and became like a floating boat that kept going off of shore and never returned to the harbor of the gospel? What if they consciously and willfully drifted into total and final unrepentant unbelief and forsook the gospel? This first section, verse 19 to 25, is an appeal to endure. This next section, verse 26 to 31, is a warning to endure. This is for Christians. And we need to take this with a sober, serious heart. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now, I want to clarify what this isn't about and what this is about, because some of you may be kind of like a little shaky in your seats. Okay, what is this about? First, what is it not? This warning is not about genuine Christians who are honestly struggling with habitual sin. Okay? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse uh, 1, he says, let us lay aside every uh, weight and sing that clings so closely. The writer assumes that there will be genuine Christians who have sins that cling closely. Now we are commanded to lay these aside, to put those off and to put on holiness. This is not about a genuine Christian who is convicted by their habitual sin from the Holy Spirit and is really struggling to be able to know the wisdom to be able to change. So who is it about? 
It's about the person who seems to profess Christ, yet then comes to consciously, definitively, and totally forsake Christ. Remember the people who he's speaking to. They were a part of the old covenant as Jews. They were converted and believed in Christ, saying he is the final high priest. He is the, has given us a once-for-all sacrifice. But they were thinking, I don't know, maybe Moses seems okay, and that's just a little, like, fluff extra on the side. This is about the person who seems to profess Christ, yet comes to consciously and definitively forsake the gospel. And he's sought really hard to convince these Jewish believers, like, this makes no sense. So imagine you meet someone at a mall. Just bump into them at, I don't know, whatever mall, Sephora if you're a girl, or Decathlon if, I don't know, you're a guy. Girls go to Decathlon too, I'm sorry. (laughs) You bump into somebody at the mall. It's a nice interaction. You want to stay connected with them. And they're like, I would really love to stay connected with you. Where should I wire you a telegram? you really want to stay connected with me? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm a little outdated. What's your fax number? Not much better. Both of these things, old, obsolete, completely unable to be able to help someone communicate today in the way that we communicate today. This is the argument that the writer has been making to the Jewish believers. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the old one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. So when the writer says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, it's because this old pattern of animal sacrifices at the temple is null. It's void. You're going back to something that has completely become obsolete like telegraph or like fax machine. You think you're going back to this old covenant, but you're going back to find there's nothing there. So when it says that there's no sacrifice remaining, it's not that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient. It's you're going back to a no sacrifice. And here's the problem. If your sin is left to linger, judgment stands looming. And the judgment against someone who has received Christ, but then comes to consciously and definitively forsake him, that is severe. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies on the mercy of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? This sounds very severe. And when we think about the Son of God, the judgment of God in these terms, vengeance, it's a fearful thing, it, it can seem to offend our sensibilities. 
Let me confront that thought, though. We expect that beautiful and sacred things should be protected. And when beautiful and sacred things are defiled, we feel outrage. But the degree of outrage that we feel is correlated to the degree of sacredness and beauty within that thing. Let me give you an example. There hasn't been a lot of snow this season. I'm lamenting it. Maybe you're not. But I'm a good Canadian, maybe. (laughs) I'm sorry. I love outdoor activities with my kids. I say I go outside with my child. We build one big snowball. We build a second one, stack it on top of it. We build a third small one, stack it on top of it. And my daughter um, dignifies this beautiful snowman with a carrot nose. And then she, she characterizes it um, and personifies it with a name, gives it a hug. Honey, it's time for dinner. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Beautiful, sacred to this little child. But say we come back the next morning, and to our shock and dismay, it has been desecrated by a local canine. And some teenager has come in and chosen to just decapitate this precious thing. Am I then now justified in outrage to vengefully go door to door seeking someone to get a pound of flesh? No, I'm not. It's it's a snowman. But when things are truly beautiful and sacred and they are defiled there is an appropriate degree of outrage. Last year, someone tried to smear um, some substance on the Mona Lisa, and the world was outraged. How many times have we seen synagogues or places uh, where Jewish believers gather spray-painted with swastikas? There's an appropriate outrage. What if someone uh, spray paints a racial slur at a public school that is attended by majority or predominantly minority students? When we see beautiful things profaned, there should be an appropriate degree of outrage. It seems that maybe our sensibilities are offended by God's vengeance and judgment against sin because we are blind to the true beauty and sacredness of the name of Jesus Christ and the blood that he has spilt. The law of God was given through Moses, and transgressing the law of God, like taking the Lord's name in vain or working on the Sabbath, that came with capital punishment. The law of God is a reflection of God's character, but... The Son of God is the exact imprint of his nature. To accept this and then willfully and consciously defile his name by definitively and totally rejecting it, it is to trample the Son of God over with our feet. It is to make his blood more precious than gold, as common as spilt milk. The Holy Spirit's whole ministry is to magnify Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit 
sees the name of Jesus so desecrated and defiled by willful, conscious, definitive, unrepentant unbelief, it outrages the Holy Spirit. Now, I've sorrowfully as you may have, I've seen people walk away from the faith. And as long as they have breath in their lungs, I have hope for anyone who has claimed the name of Christ. We all should. You may yourself feel like you're someone, even today, who's slowly drifting away. What should you do? Endure reverently. There is nothing else that can give us a assurance of forgiveness of sin, confidence of access to God than the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. But when people drift away, it's not an overnight thing. It's slow, it's imperceptible. And if you feel like you're drifting, there are a couple common influence that I've seen that turn people away. And it's not that it happens overnight, it's the compounding weariness that happens over time. Are your hearts united with the Holy Spirit to magnify Christ, or are you slowly seeing your affections attached to lesser things? Have you allowed your conscience to become numb by being desensitized to the morals and the values of the world around us without discerning? Are you genuinely suffering in a way that is making you question God's goodness? These are common factors that I see just slowly, degree by degree, turn people away. But what really solidifies it is when you suffer these things alone. And then other people are just shocked when they don't see you anymore. Experiencing troubles like this, uh, affections that go away, being desensitized by the world, doubting God's goodness and suffering, withdrawing and being alone. Experiencing troubles like this doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It means you're a normal human. But if we consciously and definitively turn away to the point of unrepentant unbelief, there's nothing else that we can turn to for sacrifice, for assurance. Christ is enough and he sympathizes with your weaknesses. The stakes are high, but draw near. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hand of the living of God, but he who promised is faithful. Learning endurance means learning enduring together. It means learning to endure reverently, seeing the holy judgment of God. But also, enduring means that we lift our eyes out from the fog that we may feel ourselves in now and look back. Because you may not be able to sense the warm, shining light of God's presence now, so Look back to when it has been true in time past. This is what the author invites the people to do. He appeals to them to, to endure together. He warns them to endure reverently, and then he encourages them to endure confidently by remembering that God has proven himself true to them in the past. Look at verse 31, excuse me, 32. But recall the former days, 
Remember the past. Recall the former days when after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. For when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. I can remember times in my life where I was really, I was like a withered house plant in my faith. I remember 2016 uh, when my role in ministry required between 50 and 60 hours of regular work. And on top of that, I was also taking a master's degree. I was so busy doing things supposedly for God that I was so rarely drawing near to God. And I remember how weary, how withered, how empty, how dry I felt. But I remember in 17 how God renewed me with his confidence. And even though through 27 and 2018, my circumstances didn't alleviate, things got harder and busier, I was still refreshed with greater joy because I turned to orient myself towards him. If you are weary, you may need to step back and remember a time when God was true in your life when you had this confidence. Think, remember back to when you were put your faith in Christ, when you were baptized, when you were diligent with the habits that you know God and which shines his face upon. God is able to renew us again when we regain our confidence. We need to endure confidently. So what is this confidence that he talks about? We read about it in uh, verse Uh, 36, do not throw away your confidence. Verse 19, since we have confidence. What does it mean to have confidence? We get a hint from Hebrews 4.16 that says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Their confidence wasn't their like personality. Their confidence was their certain access to God's presence that is secured in Jesus Christ. See, true Christian confidence isn't a manufactured mood. Some people, frustratingly to the rest of us, are just more optimistic than others. Some people are just more resolved and determined than others. That's not what we're talking about. The confidence that we have is our access to God because Christ is our high priest and has made a sacrifice once for all And that access which he has opened gives us assurance that we're always accepted. Wearied and withered Christians have the same confidence in Christ as determined and resolved Christians. So yes, the troubles of life are hard, but we don't need to shrink back. We can live by faith. We can preserve our souls. You have a confidence even though you may feel feel cowardly. Remember what Christ has done for you. 
We can endure, even through the variety of life's troubles. The conditions needed for the advantageous efforts to endure means enduring together, it means enduring reverently, and it means enduring confidently. But if we feel like we can't get up and take another mile, where do we start? There's a rhetorical question I like to ask people when I'm talking about like something that seems insurmountable to them. It's kind of humorous. Maybe you've heard it before. If I'm talking with someone and it seems like they're approaching a thing that seems insurmountable, I'll often ask them, how do you eat an elephant? Do you know the answer? One bite at a time. Whether it's running a marathon, enduring through suffering, the social pressures of people who are making us ashamed as followers of Jesus, or just the regular everyday live rhythms of being a mom, being a dad, having a job. Endurance has to start somewhere. What is the first step that you need to take today? For most of us, I would guess that if you're at a point where you feel like you're beaten down and you can't get back up, the first step you need to do is tell somebody. It's more often than not than when I find people in the circumstance, I find them alone in that circumstance. But we need to endure together. We need the renewed hope that we are secured in Christ with the reverence to know that God's name is holy and I want to enjoy its beauty, not profane his name. And it means enduring confidently, knowing that even though I may fear drawing near to God again, I can with confidence because of what Christ has accomplished. The first step may just mean telling someone, and there's a lot of steps ahead, but it'll help to be honest. We need endurance, but we can because Christ is for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. Thank you for the beauty and glory of his name. Lord God, we are so weak. Help us, Lord God, to not bemoan our weakness, but to embrace it and find your strength. Thank you that Christ has secured for us an eternal redemption. Help us to help one another to endure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've heard God's word preached. Now we'll enter a time of question and response in order to help dig a little bit deeper. If you'd like to ask more questions, you can ask them at gfc.mills.live. The link is up on the screen. So, Jason, first question. How do I endure, uh, I believe it's asking, how do I endure with someone else when I myself am suffering? So discipleship is often more uh, equitable than equal. It's okay to be, we are, uh, 1 Corinthians talked about, talks about us as being members of a body. And if one member suffers, all members suffer. If we were just to think about that analogy, like if you had a uh, broken leg, you wouldn't ask yourself, God, man, 
how can my broken leg help me get rid of this headache? No, the rest of your body would compensate for your broken leg. So if you find yourself like you want to help others, but you don't even know how to help yourself, rejoice that you're a part of a body and that it's okay to not even be able to stand on your own weight, let alone to need to rely on others. And then that just starts with being honest and telling someone, I barely know how to be able to take care of my own life right now. I need someone to be able to help me. So I think when we try, there are moments where we can try to share what we're going through with others, but we can be disappointed in how people respond. Hmm. Uh, How can we continue to reach out to others and share our suffering that we need help to endure with when we've been disappointed in the past? I'll show, so at a bare basic, if you feel nervous about speaking with somebody, speak of the pastor. Uh, They are particularly mature in such a way that the rest of our congregation has affirmed their maturity and their spiritual wisdom, and they, I am confident that you would leave reassured and loved by speaking with them, okay? So practically, if you feel like that, speak with a pastor. So then here, let me give some insights to actually, what can you do to actually not be like a unhelpful listener, Okay? Uh, the Paul Tripp gives a helpful paradigm for how to do this. Uh, four words. What are they, Justin? You know them. Love, no, speak, do. There you go. This is from a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Love. If someone comes up to you, your job is not to fix them. You start with entering into their world and sympathizing with their pain. The first time may be no problem solving at all. Because the second stage is no. Especially when you, someone, you try to listen to somebody for the first time, the best thing to do is admit your own ignorance. How much do you really know about this circumstance? Next to nothing would be a good place to start. Listen. Ask questions. Not criticizing. Not upset that they're not at a place of obedience or maturity that's easier for you because you're not in their circumstances. Usually, I can't even get to the next place, speak and do, until like the second or third meeting with that person. So if we want to be helpful to one another, start by listening and don't feel burdened that you need to fix it right there and watch your pride that thinks that you know the solution. And if you need help, talk to a pastor. You spoke also in your sermon about how there can be sin that clings close, even though we try to shake it. Uh, I wonder, is there hope for those of us that feel nagging sin month after month that continues to cling so close? Yeah, absolutely. So, number one, uh, you're never going to stand before Jesus having become Jesus. Okay, You're all going to die sinners. You're all going to die disappointed that there's still sin that clings closely. Me too. That's okay. Over time, with help, as we remember that we are risen with Christ, we can put off the old, we can put on the new. And if there is a particular way which sin is clinging closely, you're probably too blind to know what the problem is, just like I am. 
You need the help of someone who can sympathize with you, who can ask you good questions, who can point out your blind spots. But if you, per, I want to remind you of an example briefly in Scripture. First Corinthians, like the Corinthians were a mess. Uh, like people were sleeping with their in-laws and they were getting drunk on communion wine. Like this was bad. But listen to what Paul said to them at the beginning, to these like wretched Christians. He said, uh, you are not lacking in any gift, but you are waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Christ Jesus. Like the Corinthians, Paul knew what the Corinthians were going through, but he started with these sexually immoral communion drunkards, you will stand before God guiltless in the end. I don't know if any of you are getting drunk on Sundays in church. So whatever you're going through, because of what Christ has secured, take hope today that you're not know where you are, but you will stand before him guiltless. Hmm. That's great. Um, there's a helpful question here um, about how we should reach out to someone, uh, even if they're not responding to you. Um, relationships, we often think of them as being two ways. So how do we properly respond to something like that? Okay, uh, Hebrews, James, James chapter 5 says, uh, my brothers, if any, James 5.19, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So number one, like do it. Like relationships are two-way streets, but some people are suffering and they're members of the body and they don't know how much they're hurting. Mm. Um, it's often going to come with rejection and dismissal. But also remember that the Holy Spirit can do things that you can't do, and that's why we pray. Okay? Um, and remember also the prodigal son who things got worse and worse and worse before they got better. So... Uh, don't give up encouraging them. Uh, it may not be helpful to send them like 18 texts every day. <laughs> uh, and also solicit the help of other people who may have relationships with them and contact with them that you may not have. Mm. That's helpful. And then a final question. You spoke about how there are uh, oftentimes people who, well, not oftentimes, but there are people who once have confessed Jesus but then hardens their, harden their hearts towards him. So does God still harden specific hearts for his purposes today? So yeah, that's Romans chapter 9. That's not Hebrews chapter uh, 4, but not Christians. I, I, I don't, at the top of my head, I can't find a scenario. I can't, could never think of a scenario where the Holy Spirit, whose job is to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, and who wants to bear his fruit through us of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and self-control. Like, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do with, with a Christian, okay? So, um, yes, Romans 9 talks about God hardening uh, those who he's not elected, predestined. That's another discussion. But for Christians, if that's the case, it's the Hebrews chapter 3 says that we are hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. And also we are tempted by the lies of the evil one. Those
those, uh, and also we are in love with the patterns of the world. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are the things that would harden us to God, not God himself. Mm. That's great. Thank you. I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word preached. God, we thank you that though we may suffer and find it challenging to endure rather than to walk away, we thank you that you keep us. Father, we thank you that you call us to the Son, and the Son will keep us until the very last day, and we can cling to this truth for as long as we have breath in our lungs. Help us to rely on this and help us to trust in this and to have great confidence before you. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.